0: Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee.
1: I'm Lucy Houndsome.
0: and I'm Charlotte Bond. And today we're going to be talking about idealized protagonists and Mary Sues. So, we've all encountered them. Characters who can do anything. They have physical and mental abilities beyond every other character in that world, perhaps even abilities that no one else in the world has in any capacity. They are so good looking there are no words to properly capture their beauty. Everyone they meet instantly falls in love with them, and despite their beauty and incredible abilities, they are modest, kind, and selfless. These characters can do no wrong. Except that their very existence is wrong. When we stop to think about these characters, we realise they don't make any sense, no one is that perfect. Worse, no one that perfect can ever be interesting. I mean, yeah, Th- these are the kinds of characters that make me just go.
1: <laughs> you really wouldn't
0: want that. <laughs> you really wouldn't. You wouldn't want to uh, rile me up. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, an- another way to, to describe um, idealized protagonists and Mary Sue's is just a poorly developed character, too perfect and lacking realism.
2: Well, it's a bit longer than your summary there, Megan, but I really liked um, the summary from um, TV Tropes reproduced on SF Novelist, which said the prototypical Mary Sue is an original female character in a fanfic who obviously serves as an idealized version of the author, mainly for the purposes of wish fulfillment. She's exotically beautiful, often having an unusual hair or eye color and has a similarly cool and exotic name. She's exceptionally talented in implaus- implausibly wide variety of errors and may possess skills that are rare or non-existent in the canon setting. She also lacks any realistic or at least story-relevant character flaws, either that or her flaws are obviously meant to be endearing. She has an unusual and dramatic backstory. The canon protagonists are all overwhelmed with admiration for her beauty, wit, courage and other virtues and are quick to adopt her into their group, even characters who are usually antisocial and untrusting. If any character doesn't love her that character gets an extremely unsympathetic portrayal. She has some sort of especially close relationship to the author's favourite canon character, such as their love interest, illegitimate child, never-before-mentioned sister, and so on. Other than that, the canon characters are quickly reduced to awestruck cheerleaders watching from the sidelines as Mary Sue outstrips them in their areas of expertise and solves problems that have stymied them for the entire series. So that was obviously a much longer summary than Megan read out but I felt it really encapsulated what a Mary Sue is because you know as we're going to talk about there's an awful lot of different things but for me I think one of the things that really struck me was this was the idea of the other characters being reduced to awestruck cheerleaders I just thought that was such a wonderful phrase and really encapsulated to me what a Mary Sue is it's like you are the main thing And it's all right to have a competent character who is the star, but if everybody else
0: is just reduced to the status of cheerleaders, then that's really bad writing. Yes, it is. And I I like to look at, um, you know, when we look at Mary Sue as a concept, um, you know, looking back at the origins of it, which, to be fair, you know, I knew of Mary Sue, the term, and I've heard it bandied around a lot, but I had no idea where it came from. So, you know, it originated with sort of a, a fanzine, um about star trek because you know as all wonderful things do <laughs> no <laughs> um so there was a parody called you know a trekkie's tale in um in a magazine back in the 70s and the the character there was called a mary, mary sue and it was that taking off that that then the term became applied elsewhere and yeah, I just think that's really interesting how they they kind of saw that that was happening in a lot of those stories where obviously all the women are just fantastic in original series Star Trek and then obviously you know Kirk's going to fall in love with her and she's just going to be the most beautiful creature of all time and you know make me feel terrible about myself but that's fine. <laughs>
1: it seems to be the insertion of you know the author as character that seems to be you know like an, at the heart of of the mary sue this idealized uh version of ourselves and i suppose that's why you know um i'm not surprised it originated kind of in the fan fiction arena because you know how many of us do want to insert ourselves into our favorite fandom and make our you know kind of Blaze through the canon and be like, you know, this is this is where I see myself, and we're kind of. It's almost like a, you know, it it, it is wish fulfillment. It is putting putting kind of, um, you know, those this deepest desires like onto paper and in, into reality, and 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 I think it's funny because you know when you read a lot of fan fiction, you do kind of get a kick out of reading other people's uh, take on that, and and maybe the the creating a Mary Sue because she's so. Because she actually has so few defining characteristics, it's easy to kind of insert yourself into that persona, which I guess is kind of where, you know, her popularity stemmed from. This this idea that we can just all imagine ourselves in this particular kind of, you know, quite generic character, because she encompasses us all as, uh, as, you know, in a kind of
2: wish fulfillment sense. Well, I don't read a lot of fan fiction, but I know that I wrote it way before it was even a thing because, you know, I wrote mine on a BBC computer when when I was like 10 and I wanted to be in Star Wars. And I, I think a lot of the articles made a really interesting point that pretty much every writer, up to my knowledge, starts off with a form of a Mary Sue character because that's what your young brain starts with. You put yourself in stories you already know because you haven't got the capacity to dream up a whole brand new world with, you know, elves and dragons and all this kind of thing. You take what you know and the first steps to becoming a creative writer or perhaps an artist or anything like that is putting yourself somewhere that you know and you feel familiar with and playing around with the characters in there. And naturally it's your heads, your imagination, you're going to make yourself the most awesome character ever And I think one of the things the articles pointed out was if every writer starts this way, then stomping on all Mary Sues and just instantly dismissing them is going to stunt young writers and people who are just emerging into the field. And we know from, you know, media sources that there are so many people these days who are successful writers who started out in fanfic. And if you stomp on them too much either in fanfic or elsewhere, you might end up, you know, preventing someone becoming the next J.K. Rowling or the next, um, actually, no. preventing someone becoming the next Stephanie Meyer might be quite a good thing, actually. <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> well, writing politics aside. Yeah, I mean, it, my I, I call it my first novel and I wrote it when I was in high school and it was just me writing adventures for my friend group and I would like to point out that I was incredible in my story i mean i got all the guys they were all falling over themselves to get my attention it was amazing (laughs) so yeah so
2: much that's so much more interesting than mine because when i was a kid the first story i ever wrote apart from a vampire story which didn't really count um was how how I was the cool kid at school and my whole story was just a day in the life of what I wanted to be like and it brought me so much pleasure to just sit and read it on bad days and imagine what my life would have been like if I was sitting on the back row of the bus with the cool kids if so-and-so would ask me to play with them at playtime that kind of thing um so you know I think quite a lot of people do start out that way and you know it's takes a little while to break away from that and to understand that actually it's not much fun for anybody else to read that kind of stuff you know with Lucy's exception but I think you know a lot of that's where we start and I think a lot of it when you come onto to other novels and you sort of grow that it's trying to find the balance between the character you really want to be and the character that you think is a realistic and b will appeal to other people
0: but where do you find that line so obviously like I don't know if you felt the same Charlotte but when I was little, I wanted desperately to be Princess Leia and she was entirely my wish fulfilment because she was incredible. And I mean, I still wish that I could be Princess Leia. Where's the line between a character becoming almost like the, the wish fulfilment of the reader, the viewer, you know, the consumer of that media versus a kind of authorial wish fulfilment? Can I just
2: say, I didn't want to be Princess Leia when I was a kid. I wanted to be Mara Jade for anybody who read, uh, oh, read the books. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she, yeah, she awesome. rocked. Yeah. yeah. That that was, that's again, that was my wish for film. But I think that's because for me, Star Wars was way too real. Um, and the characters almost felt like real people. And it would have felt a bit weird pretending I was someone else. Whereas Mara Jade was very clearly an imaginary character. And I could twist her in my head to be something else. Um I think when I, before I read the Mara Jade ones, I just imagined myself as Luke Skywalker's girlfriend. I just made up a reason and went, "Yeah, it's, it's my head. What does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> you know, his long lost love from Tatooine come to find him and brave all the stuff. And um, sorry, this is turning into a slightly uh, analytical.
1: <laughs> I suppose there's a narrower... A zone of experience when it's you know a character created by an author who you know an author who's inserted themselves even into into that character um then it would be kind of from the other side of things i don't know whether you have a certain responsibility as an author to uh to stay away from that kind of wish fulfillment i mean it's it's a really good question because i mean as an author, I would like to think that I write I write the books that I want to read. But that's a different statement entirely from, from me saying, OK, well, I'm going to write this book because I want to imagine this particular surrounding and therefore I'm going to create a thinly failed version of myself with a different name. Um, so they are two very different things. Why is one better than the other? I mean, I suppose you just kind of have to look into the 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 popular appeal of um fan fiction and and what people get out of that um because i have read you know that that it's extremely broad now there are some you know fantastic pieces of writing um and i always kind of want to go to these people and be like my god you're a fantastic writer could you please write something in your an original world because i would totally read it because you're great um and and why are you doing this in this you know bumming around in in a in a already created world um but then you know there are the ones at the other end of the spectrum and okay yeah so mostly they're smart and there's nothing wrong with smart i like a bit of smart who doesn't um <laughs> and and those are kind of probably more the sort of um mary sue territory where we're just jumping in to get a kind of instant gratification uh, something that you know we've imagined ourselves doing Probably privately, and yet here is someone expressing all of those wishes uh you know in the public domain um so you know there is I think if we're talking about it in a kind of fan fiction arena there's there are you know quite extremes of
2: um example. The way I would look at it is when you start out writing or if you if you write a Mary Sue, it's like looking at all the toppings you have in your cake box and putting them all on top of a cake and going, "I want something of everything it's going to be so cool." Whereas I think when you get to be a bit more mature as a writer, you've got you've got more sort of leeway. So, for example, I'm currently planning a series that I plan to release, and I'm looking at all my different heroines that I'm going to have across this, and go, well, actually, one heroine doesn't have to have everything. I could have this heroine have this particular trait, and this heroine could have this particular trait, and this heroine could have this particular trait, and instead of lumping them all into one person and just throwing them into an imaginary world and go, go get them, girl. You kind of go, well, this trait that I really love and I really loved in maybe the Copper Cat trilogy, this idea of this rogue, I'm going to have that character over there to be it. But on this side, I want something a bit more serious, like maybe in Uprooted. Um, And you I think when you get a bit older and you get a bit more breadth to your writing, you have the ability to kind of go, I don't need to do it all at once. I'll spread it around. And on this in this book, I'm going to focus on this main female character or this main male character. They're going to have this trait as their dominant trait maybe a couple of others you know also to the fore as well they and then the other characters you know i don't know about you but whenever i have a protagonist i always then write the antagonists and the companions to complement that person so that they all kind of work as a team uh, and i think perhaps the distinction between a mary sue and one that other people are invested in is just the amount of stuff that they've got. I mean, that's the reason why I read out that big, long thing at the beginning. The Mary Sue has all those things. They're fantastically beautiful. They are just brilliant at everything. Everybody falls in love with them. And those are great traits, one at a time. And if you wrote three different books and each of your heroines had one of those traits and then a flaw to balance it, they would be brilliant heroines. But just throwing them all in one is kind of like putting so much topping on your cake, you can't actually see the
0: fabulous cake underneath. Yeah, it's... (laughs) Again, this is going to be to prove how geeky I am. So um, when you play certain role-playing games, um, so like Vampire the Masquerade, you actually have the choice of when you're building your character, you pick through all these like really interesting traits and so on, but you can actually pick negative traits. It makes it so much more interesting. So you kind of have these, um, you know, perhaps the your character has a terrible phobia and any time that this happens in the setting in the game your character i don't know passes out for the next turn or something (laughs) (laughs) but it just makes it more interesting um completely so i think you know and that brings us to you know why are idealized characters a problem and i would say you know straight up that they're just not very interesting if they have like everything about them is just amazing and you know especially when you come to fantasy where often these characters will have uh, you know an amazing superpower of some description if basically they're just untouchable there's something interesting about that or you know, how can you make an interesting story when someone is just so amazing at everything well, it's particularly prevalent in fantasy because
1: um as you know, I was gonna say, um, Charlotte will love this one, but the chosen one, you know, is a great ex of like a Mary Sue, mm. you know, potentially a Mary Sue, gone horribly, horribly over the top. And, you know, and and a lot of the fantasy that I read when I was growing up, um, actually mostly had uh male characters the marty Stu or gary stew whatever you like um in this this role um where they actually had very few flaws and they were just too likeable and and the weirdest thing is you kind of like you kind of find yourself rooting for them while at the same time thinking god i wish they were a bit more interesting uh, i wish there was a flaw that you know, that I could, I could really get my teeth into something that I could see them struggling with, you know, and it's a really odd um, dichotomy because they are the hero of the story, we all want the good guys to win most of the time um you know we're all kind of in the struggle together and yet it's you know and also people exhibiting cool powers when they were only farm boys before and yeah that there is a bit of coolness there i admit um but you know there has to be a line somewhere um and i think that the problem with fantasy is which is trope heavy as a genre it does and because of its escapist tendencies mm. and because of its wish-fulfillment tendencies, this is a genre that is probably... Um, it probably attracts the most Mary Sue's, probably out of any other kind of genre. Um, and I think maybe that is tied very closely into The Chosen One because that is, again, one of the kind of staples,
2: the mainstays of the, of the fantasy genre. Well, do you say that? But whenever I think of Mary Sue's, of someone who is wonderfully handsome, strides in with amazing powers, nothing is a problem. I'm, my mind always goes to Superman, who I always thought was <laughs> the, the most dull of all the superheroes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I read in some of the articles that Megan sent round was this idea of failures in your characters. And I've been writing myself little notes as I plan my new series, just the things to remember that I sometimes forget about. And one of the things I keep forgetting is that flaws should always get in the way of the character's goals, So they should have a main flaw or a couple of main flaws and it's those that frustrate them getting the goals. The idea being that they fail a couple of times so that ultimately the final victory is all that greater for them and also they overcome their flaws or at least manage to control them enough to create this victory. And that is good storytelling and it's good character. So when you write an novel, you've got to balance having good characters with having a good plot. If you've got fantastic characters and nothing to do, it's dull. If you've got fantastic plot but really dull characters, then again, it's equally dull. You've got to create this tension between the character interacting with the environment, and flaws are a good way to do this because their flaws make them afraid, they make them nervous, they make them insecure, but at the same time, they also bring out courage and determination and enable them to go forward. And if you don't have any flaws, you've just got someone like Superman charging in and going, oh, yes, it's fine. As long as there's no kryptonite here, I can deal with anything.
0: Oh, no, there is
1: kryptonite. (laughs) Oh, I'm weakening. Exactly. <laughs> superheroes are, well, again, they're kind of versions of chosen ones, aren't they? You know, the one that can do it
2: all and no one else can. I do recognise this, but I am conscious that there are so many superhero movies that I haven't seen. And I know that at the moment everybody seems to be up in arms in a good way about Infinity War. And I I, I haven't seen any of the canon, so I don't know anything about that. But I, I do think that perhaps superheroes could possibly be... At the, you know, at the mercy of the, the Mary Sue and perfect example being Superman, who was originally propaganda for Americans in whichever world war it was, I forget. And he was created to be this Superman who could triumph over everything. And I think people need that at a time when you've got war. You don't necessarily want to read about flawed characters who really struggle to get what you want. You want to hear about people who charge in and are fantastic and are Mary Sue's and everybody loves them. But that's a very different mentality to perhaps what we
0: have now my problem with chosen ones is kind of i think Lucy touched on a little bit with sort of you have you have you know the farm boy who suddenly finds out that there's this great prophecy about them and suddenly they're an amazing fighter despite never having picked up a sword before or you know and it's, yeah. it's that really irritates me because even if you are even if you have some kind of innate ability with something you still need to practice. Yeah. And, and that bugs me. You can't just say, oh, well, you have a prophecy about you and then voila, you know, like, it's, it's you're amazing. It's It's got to be... Training
1: montage! Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but at least a training montage would explain it. But some of them, they don't even have that. It's just like, oh, you're amazing. Here's a lightsaber. Yeah. And I am thinking of Ray here, but... <laughs> You know, you you need something to actually show that okay, they might be gifted, and that's fine. But there still needs to be some kind of build up or development. Yeah, exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can't just jump from A to B. Uh, nobody to celebrity kind of thing with nothing in between because yeah i mean that actually the, the stuff that comes in between is the story that's the exciting part you know that's what people have in its simplest sense the magical academy that's the you could say that that is a construct for the training montage you know you go to the magical school and you fail at some classes and you excel at others and in the end you graduate or not
0: or not but- or are you yeah <laughs> you've made me get um you know the song from hercules the disney's hercules where it's zero to hero that's oh, now you're I-
1: thinking of zero to hero and i'm thinking of be a man you must be swifter <laughs>
0: <laughs> is this the singing I- portion of the episode <laughs> yeah <laughs>
2: I really don't know whether or not I should tell you that what I'm actually thinking of is the song. What we need is a montage from team America. <laughs> ha, yes. Yes. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, montages usually work best in films and um, I'm trying to remember the name. I remember the name of the book. It was save the cat and it was about um, writing for movies. Um, I forget. Um, it was Blake something as the name of the gentleman who who wrote it, but he had this idea of doors. You had two doors that you go through and um, the second, the first door is kind of accepting there's a problem. And then the second door is almost um, accepting that you're going to deal with it. And the training montage usually comes within that point. It's like, okay, I've gone through the second door. I've accept, I've agreed that there's a problem. I've recognized it. And now I've agreed that I am the one that's going to deal with it. And I'm going to get myself up to speed, which I don't, which sort of happens in books, but it, like so you can't really have a training montage. So I think the difference between sort of being trained up in, um, movies and being trained up in books is slightly different i said i don't know whether the training montage would work in a book I'm, i mean maybe our listeners if they can think of anything um and i know fenton often emails me afterwards and goes, oh you should should have said this um <laughs> then you know feel free to drop us a line about any training montages in books that work but i, I can't think of anything yeah. i mean my favorite training montage was always um empire empire strikes back where they had
0: all that stuff with luke and they made the training montage into a decent bit of plot and i thought that was great well i think the same applies for books where it's interesting when the the kind of the training becomes part of the character development so say in um robin hobb when you have fitz learning and having to go and train with the other kids and it's like the the relationships between that and it it, Builds who he is as a person and that works and i would say similarly in rj barker who we love um, we do we love you rj (laughs) in age of assassins i mean obviously uh gun's not really learning because he's kind of pretending that he doesn't know how to do things but again the kind of the the learning sequences where he's there you know in the kind of equivalent of magical academy type area you know it's used to establish relationships between the other characters and develop their personalities and so on and so i would say that's how it works well in books where you have kind of the you actually demonstrate you show and not tell (laughs) you show that they're practicing and they're learning and putting in the hours but you do it in a way that contributes to the the development of that character as well as actually showing that they've worked at these skills
2: well i wonder then if it's the difference between the heroes and the heroine's journey the hero's journey kind of being a quest to seeks an object or a skill whereas the heroine's journey is more about sort of emotional development and if you're doing a hero's journey where obtaining a skill is a key part of it or obtaining a weapon that you need to be able to use then it becomes a key part of that whereas perhaps if you're emotionally developed sorry if your emotional development is the focus of your story then you need to spend less time at sword school um, and just kind of mention that, you know, you had six weeks worth of training and now you can use a sword. And what brought it to mind was Megan mentioning um, Age of Assassins, where I think Gerton already knows how to use a sword Mm. and it's his emotional development that is the key part of the book. Whereas obviously in something like Star Wars, yes, okay, the emotional part of the journey is still important for Luke, but a key part is learning to use the force, is learning to use the skill. So that becomes part of the story in a way that perhaps, you know, learning things doesn't in Age of Assassins.
0: Yeah, but again, you have it, it comes down to this realism factor, I would think. So in Age of Assassins you have it established that, you know, this is a character who has been training for most of his life with his master. Um, and so that, you know, immediately takes away from this idea that this is just somebody who just happens to be amazing. There's an explanation, a realistic explanation and we, you know, as, as a reader, we're not sitting there going, well, hang on a minute, <laughs> you know, so I think, yeah, that, that definitely does work in that situation, but you need to have something, even if it is just, a, as you say, you know, oh, well, he's had six months of training and now he can use a sword and that's fine, but it needs to have something. I mean, one of the things that I thought was quite interesting is that this whole
2: idea, this whole criticism of the Mary Sue is based on a character. But actually, it's not really focusing on a character. It's focusing on a storyline, really. So yes, a character may walk into the world and twist it around and make it his or her own. But it's more the story that's at fault on the character. I thought that was quite an interesting take on it. And I wonder what you guys thought about that, whether it's down to the whole thing rather than just this one character, which it seems to have been, which seems to be what's been adopted in more modern times just throwing an accusation of that character is a Mary Sue rather than looking at it as a whole and going actually (laughs) it's just bad story writing the perfect example being I suppose um, as Megan mentioned earlier Ray in The Force Awakens who is a perfectly competent character and really you know I really liked her I thought she had a lot of good points a few bad points but one of the things that we mentioned was you know we don't see her actually learning how to use the voice she just knows how to do it Um, and whether that is perhaps more down to the storyline and the writers rather than the character itself.
1: My thing is that story comes from character. It stems from character. I, I mean, good story perhaps stems from character. I mean, maybe poor stories is an example of what Charlotte's talking about. You know, that, that, you know, a poor story when you, you you've got, you know, you've got a storyline and you have to try and jam your characters into it to make it work. Maybe that's when you get the Mary Sue, because you know you're you're not you've you've put all of the kind of owners and the importance on the storyline and you know your characters too. I think I think characters are the most important aspect of a story and they are the story. Um, so if you've kind of got this like agenda. Uh, that, you know, you're trying to push for some reason and you're trying to drop characters in just to serve that, then, then yeah, maybe the characters are going to turn out two-dimensional um, and they're just going to be kind of like author stand-ins.
0: Yeah, I, actually, I had um, a writing teacher who used to say, uh, because plot, um, and when something would happen and then just in the story and he goes, well, well what? why and how like that person didn't have that ability 10 minutes ago and you go oh well it happened because plot um because you needed that to happen in order to the for the book to move on because you have clearly mm-hmm. decided you've written yourself into this hole or you've You've just come up to a point where, oh, this person needs to be able to get out of this or so on. Um, so it just happens. And actually, that was one of my problems with Infinity War, um, where you have some of the, uh, the superheroes, so like Doctor Strange, whose abilities are so completely ill-defined. And, you know, one minute he's just trying, you know, things that seem rather ineffectual. And then all of a sudden he does something like just knocks everyone out you're like well why didn't you do that 10 minutes ago oh because we need the big fight scene right got it and then why don't you do it again because we get no explanation of you know do you get tired do your powers run out we have no idea like wh- what is it about you how do you work but maybe that's just me um <laughs> uh yeah so i think definitely there is there is an element of if someone has kind of maybe maybe this is a problem for plotters you know, rather than people who kind of write and explore through the character, if people have come up with the plot and they say, okay, this is what I want to happen, without figuring out how necessarily the characters move through that, then the character will necessarily just like, oh, well, they're up against a giant ogre. Well, it turns out that Mary Sue is really good at killing ogres. She's never done it before but she just knows exactly where to get them you know it, it, that's the kind of thing that i think you're talking about and and i definitely can see how that could come out of a plotting issue rather than necessarily um an ill-defined or uh, character from the beginning with an author when it and it sort of becomes a mary sue in the way that the author is trying to fix the problems that they've created for themselves
2: yeah Mm -hmm. And it comes back to that whole idea of stomping on early writers Um, and what Megan described about, you know, suddenly being able to defeat an ogre. I must admit, when I've been writing some of my stories that I have plotted out with character sheets and things, I suddenly get there and go, oh, yeah, I knew she could do this. But I haven't actually said she could do this. And I've had to go back and write an extra scenes or add in a little bit to kind of explain why this person has this knowledge. So maybe part of the creation of Mary Sue's is just inexperience and people not understanding that although in their head this character is fantastic and fully formed on the page they just come out as a product rather than a person
0: let's talk a little bit about false flaws (laughs) so when it comes to sort of some characters where you get kind of this oh yeah but they they do have a flaw and it's because they're so beautiful. No, um you know, it'll be some random thing that has nothing to do with the plot or then turns out to be kind of endearing or it's you know, it's 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 a f- one of those things. It's like when you go to a job interview and they ask you what your weaknesses are <laughs> and you phrase everything as it's like, "Oh, it's kind of a weakness. Oh, I'm I'm a bit of a perfectionist, but that's really good because it makes me detail oriented." You know, something as nonsensical as that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of where i'm sorry at i'm sh-
2: i'm shaking with laughter because anybody who watches or sorry did watch the green wing when it was on years and years ago yes um yes where that conversation between guy secretan and martin where martin's going oh no no no, but i could say it's a really cool weakness because actually being a perfectionist is really great and when i when i was reading about this it just made me think of that it made me laugh <laughs> great show and, but I, again i think I think it comes back to this idea of not being a very experienced writer. I don't know whether this is going to cause controversy because that seems to be my answer to everything. But we were talking earlier about flaws getting in the way of goals and false flaws don't really do that. Oh, she's so beautiful, you know, she can't help it kind of thing. But it doesn't actually do anything with the plot. And flaws are there to create tension, to create failures that the characters have to overcome. And if the characters aren't actually overcoming it and it's not really addressed, it's not really part of the story and it's just kind of a minor detail. So I kind of feel like again, false flaws are just about sitting down and thinking thinking more about how you could use this flaw to create more tension. Because every time I've had a character and I've gone oh, this floor is really irritating, not really doing anything. If you actually sit down and think about it, you go, well, yeah, but a person with that attribute would actually react like this over here in this scene and actually that would create more dramatic tension because this other character would respond by saying, get the hell out of here or something like that. And, you know, once you actually sit and think about it, it does create dramatic tension. But I don't think people who write Mary Sue's really kind of go into that depth of detail.
0: I mean, one thing that I'm thinking of now is is kind of the also the difference between kind of an an internal flaw to an external one because you have if we go back to the Superman example he doesn't really have any flaws other than he is weak around kryptonite but kryptonite isn't something that he can overcome it's not something that you know, because it's external to him all it is is someone just has it next to him and oh no he's weak it's not a very interesting flaw in a way that he could maybe deal with that or you know have any kind of emotional impact to him it's just there
1: <laughs> yeah that's a really good example actually I think that it, it ties in really nicely with um you know what Charlotte was saying about um internal flaws and the fact that, you know, you have to deal with them to advance the plot and to make it interesting and to, you know, and it comes as a natural reaction of interacting with other people and their flaws and how their flaws might interact with yours. And, and it creates an interesting storyline. But yeah, having a little green rock, I mean, how do you, it's, it's the problem. How do you address that? I mean, how how does he... He doesn't. And I suppose that's why, you know, we were saying earlier that Superman is one of the most boring superheroes because he uh, yeah, I mean, like it is that kind of um, internal internal flaws. And I mean, maybe even flaw is the wrong word. It's just it's what makes us human. And the little green rock is kind of extraneous to this. So, yeah, it's it's a really good example of of, like how not to do it. Well, I always
2: felt that my favourite Superman film, and this is going back years and years of Christopher Reeve stuff, was the one where they made anti-Superman, where he dressed all in black and grey and basically had all the powers of Superman and no conscience. And I really liked that because it was kind of externalising what should have been his internal struggle. And although I mean, it was a terrible... It must have been Superman 3 or 4 or something like that, but I found that much more interesting. Yeah. And seeing what would happen if Superman had no morals whatsoever. And admittedly, at the end, it was just a, a great big punch up like all the Superman films are. But I still it still always had a soft space in my heart because it dealt with what I thought was a more interesting antagonist than, like you say, a piece of green rock or Lex Luthor, who was always going to fail. As as wonderful as Gene Hackman was, he was always going to fail.
1: It's like the Doctor Manhattan um, pattern where, you know, you become so powerful that you distance yourself from humanity that the humanity you lose your humanity and if you lose your humanity well it can kind of go one of two ways can't it it can go you know you basically have no morals and you turn evil evil in the sense of you start committing kind of heinous acts or you turn away from humanity entirely because you have no point of of of, um of contact anymore with them so yeah it's interesting isn't it
2: so one Mary Sue that I think actually works quite well is James Bond, uh, who is a similar character to Superman in that he waltzes into every um, every incident and manages to overcome it, you know, <laughs> by like one second away from when the bomb goes off and, and all these kind of things. Um, but it does actually work quite well. Uh, I say that with with kind of a... edge to it because i know that there's recently certainly within my friendship group there's been talk about james bond as being a racist a rapist sorry um and certainly if you go back to the original books there is a lot of really uncomfortable um internal monologue there about how he views women um particularly in the first casino royale which i read and which i never ever want to read again but on screen it works really well and it shouldn't because he's this amazingly fantastic guy and even when they've got him pinned down buckled up with a laser coming towards him he still escapes and still does it with style without messing up his hairdo so why why do we think that james bond works and yet some others just fall completely flat on their face
1: i think because james bond is self aware it's is aware of the fact that it's kind of blatantly ridiculous uh, and 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 it's a bit tongue in cheek uh, and you, when you're watching it, you're kind of never really that frightened that something terrible is going to because, you know, it's not. Um, and anything that does happen, it's kind of has this kind of temporary feel. It's almost like reading one of the more kind of comfortable fantasy books where even when something bad happens, you know that the overall story arc is not going to end in gore and tragedy. Um, and it has this this awareness. I mean, every time he even says it's this stupid, immortal lines about shaken, not stirred. You kind of like, you know, roll your eyes in a kind of kind of like, oh, this is so this is so stupid, but kind of so perfect for this kind of film and and i don't i don't know i think it must be where that that idea of 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 kind of being like a bit meta about itself i mean it knows i mean the whole i don't know but i've never read the books um so i really can only comment on on how it's portrayed on screen um but you know when you you know what you're going to get when you go into a bond film I mean, I know that's what they've been trying to edge away from with Daniel Craig and, and the more kind of recent films where they've made them a bit darker and, and harder to guess. And they've tried to, to weave some kind of like psychotherapy stuff and background into it, you know, and I actually don't think they work particularly well like that. I think they're OK. I think the, the better born films are the ones that actually, you know, own up to it being a little bit ridiculous.
0: Well, yeah, the problem with the the serious, darker bonds is that he still has his like incredible panty Burps. dropping yes abilities where he just sort of looks at a woman and she 's like, "Take me." You
1: know? yeah. yeah, Yeah. so they're trying to, Then I see what you mean, they're trying to move away, but they're actually taking all of those cliches with them and it's it's
0: not working. Yeah, well, or at least, you know, picking and choosing. It's like you can't have mm. your cake and eat it. You can't say that you're super serious and then still have every single woman he meets want to fuck him. It's just not, yeah. it doesn't work. <laughs> but, no. I mean, it's, it's interesting until, you know, you've kind of picked up the sort of the it's a bit comedic in sort of the the older ones you know it's very cheesy and it kind of leans into that it's a
1: caricature isn't it of of itself
0: (laughs) of of the whole
2: spy you know of of espionage well you would assume with a surname like mine that I would have avoided it like the plague (laughs) but actually actually I grew up with them and I know that I'm a little bit older than you guys and long before we had, you know, all the entertainment and social media we had now, we used to have the Bond films on on Easter and Christmas and bank holidays. And, you know, it was at a time when it was too hot outside and you just wanted to sit and chill. So I watched them all. And I've kind of grown up with James Bond, I suppose, in the way other people grow up with Doctor Who. And at the beginning, in the first Sean Connery ones, which I think everybody really likes, he is... So he hasn't quite gone into the caricatures that were the later Bond movies like uh, Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton. And certainly, like I say, I've only read one book and and that was more than enough, but certainly in the books they try to give him a lot of background and Ian Fleming goes into the rationale for why he does stuff and it's really quite dark, you know, the one that I've read. And then you get the Sean Connery ones and he's, you know, he's quite serious but also quite, um, quite competent. And then you get the Roger Moore and the Timothy Dalton ones where he's, so smooth it's like watching an oil slick just walking around and then you start getting pierce brosnan who was obviously quite a bit of a gap and the thing i noticed about pierce brosnan the very first one was goldeneye where he has that whole bit with sean bean and you have the first introduction i think even before the movie credits have rolled where he is obliged to leave his partner behind which is something they've never ever explored in bond before in certainly in the in the movies. And, you know, people die and he gets the girl and he leaves the girl and he forgets about them, apart from spoilers, sorry, one where his wife dies. But generally, they've kind of kept away from the backstory and and all that kind of stuff. And each new Bond movie is almost resetting itself, whereas Pierce Brosnan, I think they tried to explore it a bit more. And then, as we say in the later ones, they really got into the gritty stuff with with Daniel Craig. And they really started to think, what does make this guy tick and, and what does it do? So, to me, it's almost like you've taken an original Mary Sue and that no one has recognised at the point, obviously, and then have turned into a really in-depth character. And personally, I'm quite intrigued to see where the next generation is going to go, whether they're going to stick with this really gritty realism or whether they're going to go back to the, the fun of the Mary Sue, of the original Bond, where he just kind of waltzes in. Um, sort of like Austin Powers, but but very serious.
0: I mean, I wonder if there's you know, the kind of um, get out of jail free card when it comes to kind of a genre thing, when it's, so say, you know, we've talked, we've done an episode before on guilty pleasures, um, you know, and I love terrible teen movies and I go into watching terrible teen movies in the hope that there will be a dork who's just, you know, takes off the glasses and turns out to be the most incredible, beautiful woman they've ever seen and you know like I go in for that kind of thing and does something like James Bond you know at least the the early ones as you say because they're kind of setting themselves up for that does it matter if there's a character that's a Mary Sue if if you go into it knowing that and kind of wanting that if if that's all you want from it does that make it okay well, I would say absolutely yes because again, I grew up with Bond. It was
2: all right. It was really good. What I love, you're gonna hate me for this. What I love is Resident Evil, particular first one with uh, Mila Jovovich.
0: I... I'm sorry, but why I was would talking I hate to the listeners. <laughs> okay, because I like that too. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, but it, it's the same principle. It's just someone, in this case, female in a very good dress, going around and kicking ass, and it it's just amazing. And I. I don't mind that there's no character development. I don't mind that she has all these skills and the answer is she was a a military trained, implanted, Asian, secret, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just good fun. And I think, you know, it is possible to enjoy these Mary Sues, but at the same time, I wouldn't necessarily take it very seriously. And it is very tongue in cheek and it is the most unbelievable film ever, but it is good fun. Mm. So it
1: seems like it comes down to a point of awareness that if you, if you, the reader or the viewer are aware that this is what you're going into, um, or uh, whether the the piece of media itself, be that a book or a film, is aware that that's what it's presenting to its audience, then you know that's okay it's not something that you're going to come out feeling like you've been shortchanged or you feel oddly disappointed you know that it, if it's if it's built like that then what's the problem
0: yeah don't have delusions of grandeur about the uh, you know high literary canon that you're going to step into and then just have really unbelievable characters who are just amazing at everything that doesn't work but if you're you're not aiming so high then hey why not <laughs> If you just want to write a bit of Dragon Age
2: sex dungeon smart, then, you know, go for it, because we're all for it. Yes, we are. <laughs> and maybe that's why this whole thing kicked off in the first place, because Star Trek, okay, unbelievable. Um, it, it really stretches incredulity. But at the same time, it, it was kind of serious, it was kind of moral, and you don't expect the kind of ridiculous Mary Sue characters. They at least had some the characters all had some flaws. You had the wonderfully grumpy Dr. McCoy, you had the incredibly intelligent but emotionally distant Mr. Spock, and you had Kirk who was wonderfully brave but at the same time also incredibly reckless with it. And they were really nicely balanced characters. And if you introduce a Mary Sue into something like that, it is going to completely upset the balance. Whereas to be honest, if you if you inserted a Mary Sue into Resident Evil, you just have another Mary Sue, and another kick-ass heroine, and it would just double the fun for me because that's kind of what I'm expecting. Yeah, completely. So I think Lucy's right when she says it is the audience expectations. Are you going in expecting to see Star Trek, whether it's the original series, um, the very, very moral next generation, the slightly darker Deep Space Nine, or are you going in to see James Bond beat up some bad guys or Mila Jashowicz who pretty much was Resident Evil in The Three Musketeers as well, <laughs> just kind of chill up the scenery. It really does depend. And the Mary Sue can find a home if it is the right home with the right audience and genuinely complementary supporting characters.
0: I wanted to talk about, you know, why or what we think about the The fact that this kind of idealized character trope is you know known as Mary Sue, and although we have things like the Gary Stew or the Marty Sue or whatever to to label against men, you know most people know it as a Mary Sue, and it is kind of very much linked to female characters who tend to have these kind of nonsense character development or you know they're just there to be amazing and not have any personality and you know why we're kind of generally speaking a little bit you know more negative towards female characters that fall into this rather than male characters I mean
2: personally I would um, look at two things firstly the fact that um, as wonderful as Star Trek the original series was and it was wonderful and as much as it pushed boundaries there weren't a lot of very strong female characters in it regularly. There, there were some very good ones, um, some very good characters, um, but it was a lot about Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and so on. And I think probably, I remember reading one of the articles being sent around that a lot of women fan fiction writers came to it and they wanted to be part of it and there was no character that they could perhaps write about. Therefore, they inserted their own and then it becomes wish fulfillment. And particularly in a time, was it the 1960s that was around, when women were just starting to feel liberated and were just beginning to feel that they could be equal with men. They weren't very used to being equal with men, so they weren't necessarily, you know, thinking, thinking in a very writerly style, if that makes sense, which is why you end up getting perhaps more Mary-Sues than than you would do. Um, But I would also say, and apologies to listeners who know all of my, my favourite rants, that you could trace it a little bit back to fairy tales. Um, If you look at lot, a lot of fairy tales that involve men, there are quite a lot of men who rely on luck and skills. I mean, the, my favorite one is always The Boy Who Learned to Shudder. is about a young lad who has no fear at all, and he goes out and he encounters all these monsters, and he just outwits them just by being so wonderfully unafraid. And he's not particularly brave, he's just not afraid. And then he learns to shudder because he realizes that the the young love he left behind is dying, and that really instills fear in him. And that's the whole point of the story. But a lot of the previous fairy tales had men with a lot of luck in them and the world twisted around them in a weird way. But women, not so much when it came to fairy tales. So men were used to read, well, we're all used to reading about men having the world twisted around them and just waltzing in and, and defeating everything. Whereas for women, it was a much different dynamic from the stories they were used to. So when the Mary Sue did crop up, they were like, wow, we've never seen this before. This is weird and unusual and we don't like it. And I think possibly that could be part of where this reaction, this very violent reaction against Mary Sue's has come from.
0: So we're kind of desensitised to the male version of the Mary Sue? I think so. Well, again, I wouldn't necessarily say that fairy tales had Mary Sue's in it, but I would say that they
2: generally have men doing more extraordinary things with no real reason behind it and as we were saying earlier that you don't get fairy tales they have big long descriptions of training it's just Mm. he picked up this sword he used it he defeated the ogre it was all happy whereas with women they tend to be much more about using their wits and things and actually sort of thinking their way to a a resolution of a conflict so again this is possibly just simply because of my reading and, and that's the way i read it but i do kind of feel like there were already plenty of stories where men did this and then suddenly you have a story where a woman does this And everybody's going, well, we've never heard of that before. And it doesn't actually sound very realistic, even though if they actually step back sensibly and went, well, it doesn't sound very realistic for that guy to do it either. It's just because it's new and unusual that people seem to go, oh, hang on a minute. And that's kind of where it came from.
1: I agree with Charlotte um, 100%. I think that that is totally, I think there are far more um, examples of men doing outlandish and, uh, overly impressive things which we just forgive instantly because they're the hero in their own story uh and you know it's the kind of books that look all three of us grew up reading when you know there weren't quite so many you know I, I don't like using the word kick-ass women but maybe it's a good one in this case you know a lot of the 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 warriors and the wizards and they, they're all very male and there's this kind of like yeah, this, I think the Mary Sue may have grown up from this idea that, you know, when a woman does it, it's suddenly unrealistic and unbelievable um, when we because we're just so used to, to to seeing it in men and nobody questions that. Uh, and the other thing that kind of gets me is um, I noticed that when reviewers, especially male reviewers, um uh, reading a a book with a female character, main female character, um, and they're struggling to find reason why they didn't like the book. They tend to drop in the Mary Sue line as a kind of, oh well, this is the reason I didn't like it because clearly the character is a Mary Sue. So when I most of the time, whenever I see that, I heavily disagree that the character is a Mary. Just think that there's a a lot of uh, reviewers find this a very convenient, and it's maybe not only just male reviewers; it's female reviewers too. They find this a convenient um, excuse to to actually, you know, so they don't really have to come up with anything, you know, in in great depth about what was what they found problematic with a certain story. They oh no, the characters are Mary Sue, therefore none of the book could work at all. And um, I think we're more likely to do that with female authored books and female main characters than when we are with men um, and I think that probably stems from again what Charlotte was saying that this this, uh, you know not being used to seeing women in positions of power <laughs> that's a terrible thing to say um, but I think this is that that's still the problem kind of right at the heart of, of genre um, writing and and the way that we view the, the genre as
0: a kind of commercial entity so to maybe to to end on a little bit of a happier note <laughs> um shall we talk about some of the our favorite characters who who really kind of overturn this trope because there's one that when I read it I just thought wow this it really leapt out to me as a character main protagonist who was allowed to be flawed in very real ways um especially when it came to the the style of story it was so um the one i'm thinking of is nix nissa from cameron hurley's bell dame apocrypha series she's you know this uh, she, you know she was a warrior she's um a mercenary she is really tough She's very good at what she does. You know, she does bomb disposal, and she's got all these skills. But you know, she was properly trained as in all this kind of stuff. But she can't aim for shit. She is terrible with a gun. She walks around with big, you know, fuck off guns that you'd be terrified of. But she can't use them. She's like spraying them out into no man's land because she has no idea where, like, how to aim at a target. So that just, I, I just love that. That was just so good to me because you know it, it, and especially because like the way that the world is all set up you just expect her to be oh okay this is just going to be one of these ones where this woman is just incredible at everything to do with fighting or whatever and then oh no it turns out she can't aim and I just I, I lost it I think that is just bloody brilliant
1: I uh, got a manga slash anime recommendation seen The Ancient Magus's Bride uh, which has been uh, airing on Crunchyroll. Actually, it's only the, the first season is only just finished. Um, but I've been reading the manga as well. And you'd think that this is like the, the, the a typical kind of um, you know a teen, young female teen protagonist uh, who discovers that you know she she's always been able to see spirits and she. Uh, has the ability to learn magic and you think this could is that if that's all that you knew about it you could think i know where this is going um but actually the the author female author um is she just you know takes it in a completely different direction and the the main character is really it's really interesting uh the she's chronically weak so uh anytime she can do magic uh, but unfortunately she has this ability to absorb great quantities of it um instead of turning her into like an all-powerful sorcerer it kind of breaks down her body from the inside so she after doing some you know after maybe helping somebody and she's very kind so i mean she'll help people even when it puts her own life at risk so you think oh another maybe overly kind person but her max story is such that you know i won't get quite complex um but every time she kind of you know uh Save something or achieve something. She falls unconscious and starts coughing up blood. That is a pretty, pretty big handicap to you know being you know you could turn out to be the teen kind of like you know witch basically of of your own story. And so I thought that that was a really great example. So yeah, if you haven't read Ancient Mage's Bride, then it's um it's a
2: really it's really good um, manga series. I was thinking about this, and I think. I like seeing my characters develop emotionally, but I also like seeing them build extra skills. Um, so the ones that I thought of in particular were, um, Lucy can probably help me out here with the pronunciation of the heroine in Uprooted, Agnieszka. Agnieszka. There we are. Um, I really liked her because at the beginning, now I will, I will preempt this by saying Uprooted is one of my favourite stories ever. <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning I really hated the main character because she was so flawed and so weak and so passive I just wanted to slap her and I kept going with it for a little bit and she just she just develops into this amazing heroine who yet somehow still retains her vulnerability and I realize as I said that how that sounds like a horrible romance novel but it really isn't she she manages to maintain her slight insecurities and her quiet, passive nature, but at the same time become quite kick-ass and challenge the stereotypes around her. Um, the other one I quite like watching the um, the progression of is Noon from The Ninth Rain. Now, I haven't read The Bitter Twin yet, so I don't know how that, that pans out, but I am re- just read The Ninth Rain, and I really enjoyed watching how she kind of goes from someone who has this incredible power and just manages to kind of learn almost as she's going along. And I felt that, I thought that felt really natural compared to something like we were talking earlier about Rey from Star Wars, where she just has this power and suddenly she can harness it. I really like Noon's journey where she learns how to control it and how to adapt it. <clears throat> and there's a little bit of a MacGuffin partway through, which I won't spoil, but I even thought that was quite good. And I, I like that as a, a good plot device. And I'd also like to give a little shout out to John Connolly's Charlie Parker, who is perhaps the only private detective I've ever read about where the author mentions him going to the gym regularly. Because you get all these private detectives, all these heroes who have this massively wonderful, fabulous muscular body. Do they ever go to the gym? Do they ever go running? No, no. But John's always been very careful in his Charlie Parker novels to put in every now and again how Charlie goes for a run to think things through or he goes to the gym or does something like that. And I just thought that was a nice touch, just a, a little thing like, yeah, this guy does beat up, you know, bad guys and demons. But when he's not doing that, he goes to the gym to keep in shape, to make sure that when he does come to, in front of a demon, he can beat it up. And I just thought that was a nice touch.
1: You you know, thinking about this question, um, I I was trying to think of, um, you know, I was looking at my bookshelf and I was trying to think of, oh well, okay, what what are the Mary Sue's that I can see? And you know, I actually wasn't coming up with very many because I really think we've we've come on actually a long way since the, you know the height of the Mary Suedom. I think there's, or maybe that's the books that I choose to read because I'm sure that they do, and they do persist in some forms in in um, throughout genres still. Um, but a lot of the stuff that I've read recently, you know, I was trying to think of that. I don't know actually. No, they're, you know, all the characters are drawn really well. Um, And they don't really fall into that kind of,
2: you know, cliche perfectionist kind of trap that that Mary Sue is known for. We were talking earlier when we came online about books that we've been reading that we did or didn't like for various different reasons. And I think it's very different to read about a Mary Sue and to watch them on TV. So if I've got some ironing to do, I just love putting on Resident Evil and watching that for like an hour and a half and drinking some wine and doing my ironing or doing my counts, whatever I need to do. And it's just it's just so wonderful and great fun but I wouldn't do that with a book I wouldn't sit down and voluntarily read about a Mary Sue because I need to get lost in that world it, it's it's not something that really draws me in whereas if I've got it on the tv I can kind of tune in out of it and I can enjoy the the action and the punch up and everything and then if, if it gets a bit dull I can go back to the you know focusing on the ironing or whatever it is so I think it's very different depending on books and TV. And while I love watching Mila Jojovovich, I'm not necessarily sure I'd enjoy reading about her. Yeah, it's a really interesting comparison
1: between books and films, actually, and how you kind of feel like you need your full attention to, you know,
2: to delve into a, a, a book, you know, and immerse yourself in that world. And to be honest, that's because when you're reading a book, you want to get inside the character's head. I was going to say something very crude about Resident Evil, but I will not. But the idea is that I can quite happily watch that wonderful dress and those big boots that she wears just running around, you know, and that is enough. She's a good-looking woman and she kicks ass and, you know, she's got some good-looking companions who may or may not survive to the end. And it, it's a feast for the eyes and it doesn't matter that it's well-plotted or that she you know, they don't adequately explain how she's got these fantastic superpowers. But if I was reading a book less of it and i i need to be able to connect with them on a level that i don't need to with the tv
0: so i think we can clearly say that a mary sue is when a character just doesn't have any kind of realism to them they need to have a flaw it needs to be interesting it needs to actually impact the narrative in some way and not just be a kind of cop out from the author but They can still work if we go in there expecting a Mary Sue and enjoying it. And uh, I think we've sort of covered that it definitely probably works a little bit more when it comes to film and TV than it does with books. But, you know, do share your favourite Mary Sues or characters that you love that really, you know, don't follow this at all. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper.